Research and Advocacy Officer at Section 27, Mr. Julia Chaskalson, is on the line now. She's of Section 27, and they argue that for health care in a post-pandemic human rights-focused budget would have allocated funding specifically for backlogging access to health services from especially the last two years. Of course, our backlog in health budgeting has always been... Uh, an issue, but certainly the last two years it has been that much more pronounced. And this in conjunction with the fact that tackling the present inequalities in access to health care that characterize the public health system equally as an important feature of what this year's budget should look like. Ms. Chaskalson goes on to say that this year's budget does not do enough to enable the government to realize people's fundamental human rights to access to health care. She will unpack this statement further. Julia, good evening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Julia, and good evening to your listeners. Okay, tell us then from a Section 27 perspective, as you're advocating for the rights in the Constitution at large, but in Chapter 2, Section 27, in particular, right to health care, social security, food, water, and things incidental there too, what have you noted from this year's budget that becomes very much stifling for the progress of the continued change and growth of access, credible quality access to public health care in the country? Mm-hmm. Thanks for that question, Tongyazo. What we're seeing at Section 27 is that this budget, the first kind of proper budget from Finance Minister Gogondana, is that this kind of cements and continues a trend of austerity budgeting, where we're seeing that more and more a greater share of the national expenditure is going to paying off loans and paying off interest on loans um, in comparison to what is being allocated towards basic socioeconomic rights like access and health care, but also basic education and social security. And, and this is a this is this is a problem because we know that over the past two years with COVID-19, the health sector has been hugely affected by the pandemic, and we've got huge backlogs, whether that's in surgeries, whether that's in accessing to chronic medications, whether that's in testing and treatment efforts for HIV. And the budget this year, um, in 2022, seen more focused on kind of creating this this. This, this kind of goal of a primary surplus as opposed to addressing these backlogs and actually meeting the healthcare needs of our population, which are growing. Um, so from outside of Section 27, we're, we're very concerned about this and want to see more kind of more funding meeting the demands of the population in terms of healthcare. And that would mean, you know, making sure that, that, that funding is allocated, that keeps up with inflation and also in terms of population growth. COVID-19 has in many respects for the last two years just given practical expression of a different kind to what had been a practical expression, but perhaps not nearly as pronounced or as obvious. But we certainly do know what we know, and there's no room to hide, if you like, for the public health care system that has been under pressure from day one, but most mm-hmm. certainly in the last two years. How do we ensure that, for instance, the stories that have come out of Chris Anibaragwanath Hospital here in Johannesburg, the biggest hospital by a country mile in the country, on the continent, even in the southern hemisphere at a public sector level, something as basic as food for patients running out. I would assume there is a contractor for that. That budget is in advance of a year known up front, and it shouldn't be happening at any stage much less at a hospital on such a basic service as food. How do we get there? Because it certainly is going to give us an impression as to how health budgeting is arranged at hospital level even. Mm. 
Sure, and I think that the kind of recent pickets outside Prithani Baragwanas are indicative of many kind of compounding issues happening at the same time. On the one hand, that picket was also about challenges with staffing at the hospital. Now, this is the biggest hospital, as you say, in, in the Southern Hemisphere, um, but a number, I think several hundred posts were cut this year. And, and that was a hospital that was understaffed before COVID-19, and now this has kind of been exacerbated where kind of COVID posts weren't renewed for this coming year. But then you've also got the issues with kind of medical waste disposal and, and the inability of the hospital to actually uh, procure enough food for its patients and procure nutritious food for its patients who require a kind of nutritionally balanced meal in order to tolerate their medicines and to recover. So I think kind of the, the challenges there are, are indicative of what we're going to be seeing more and more of if this budgeting trend continues. So there's been real-term reductions in the money that is given to provincial health departments and to kind of these large central um, provincial hospitals like Tatani Baragonis for goods and services, but also for compensation of, of employees. And really, this is this is felt by the patients, right? This isn't kind of an abstract concept here. Mm. This is this is this is difficulties in, in people getting access to meals while they're in hospital. This is you know doctors and nurses being worked off their feet because there aren't enough um, posts to actually deal with the number of patients um, that are in that hospital. So when when we look at what what's actually been spent on 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 people in the public sector, what we're seeing is a is a decline in how much money is given. Give, uh, sorry, how much money is given to these kind of central hospitals to actually care for patients. When we look sort of over the 2021-2022 financial year, it was roughly around 5,200 rand spent per patient in the public healthcare sector. But by the end of 2025, that could be as low as sort of 4,600 rand. So we're seeing instead of kind of actually enabling a hospital like Prithani Barakwanath, which has one of the best reputations on the continent for providing, you know, really incredible surgical care, rather than enabling this hospital to provide the care that it can provide, we're actually going to be seeing greater and greater challenges in, in getting, you know, whether it's food, whether it's bandages, whether it's medical equipment, whether it's updating, um, you know, uh, the kind of the, uh, the, the machines and the equipment needed to, to provide surgeries. So this is, I think the Kritani Baragwanath is exactly the type of thing that Section 27 is most concerned about when it comes to the health budget. Let's talk about the fact that in real terms now we are seeing a budget that is minus 4.3% of CPIX. That's consumer mm-hmm. price inflation. So in other words, the health budget over the next year has to do whatever it is required to do more with less than what uh, the expenditure trends are. In other words, essentially less. It has to do more with less. How does a government, one, make and pass that budget? Because you would think of the critical indicators, especially in health-related pandemic times, it would be health that would receive uh, an allowance that allows it, frankly, to assist the nation move past the COVID times. Education, of course, you can never compromise on education budgeting. Between those two indicators, in this instance, we're talking about health. How has it been justified to the extent that you've had those conversations with the policymakers and those who allocate budget as to this being essentially what the nation has to deal with, more especially when you talk about continued infrastructure decay? Most of the public health facilities Mm -hmm. are in need of major infrastructure projects. 
of course, you mentioned something critical, human resources. They are oftentimes, if not all times, understaffed. Between those two alone, you cannot under any circumstances, or you should not under any circumstance, justify a budget cut or a budget that is less than the growth of the challenges that the department faces. How do we move from there? Mm, I mean, these are exactly the questions that we've, we've been asking ourselves, Sonia, and, and also with other partners in the space and civil society. And we've, we've been trying to kind of engage with Treasury for the past you know, few years, whether that's making submissions to Parliament and the kind of uh, the, the committees who are responsible for actually kind of getting getting the budget tabled and then passed and kind of written into law. And interestingly enough, last year there was a huge collection of civil society organizations, I think it was over 100 member-based movements, who came together to, to sort of implore Parliament to say that the budget is unconstitutional. Because when you look at what these cuts uh, amount to in real terms and the spending per patient or per learner in the basic education sector, this means that government is kind of neglecting or jeopardizing its, its constitutional obligations to promote and uh, respect the rights that are in our constitution. So uh, on the one hand, this is not this is not a new conversation, and, and, and civil society has really been trying to engage with the powers that we for many years on these issues. But then, yeah, I mean, I guess sort of from, from, from Treasury's point of view, this is a tough love budget. This is a, a, a budget that's all about kind of reducing the deficit so that we can have a primary surplus. But I think while that is important and, and repaying our international loans or our local loans is important and is, a, is an imperative, we can't get out of those. I think there are choices around the rate at which those repayments are done and also kind of other bigger choices in terms of how we raise revenue, how we use revenue and how we allocate that revenue. And I think that's also kind of where the, where the politics come into play is that we're seeing over time that there's less and less interest in, in, in promoting public health and strengthening the public health care sector and kind of more interest over time in, in terms of kind of giving corporate kickbacks or sort of uh, income, income tax payers getting those, getting those uh, cuts to personal income tax too. So I, I think that there are, there are choices at play here which, which speak to government's priorities and certainly from our side and the side of civil society we're saying that you know, COVID has shown what happens when the public health care sector isn't supported and isn't resourced adequately. And in order to recover from that, but also to move forward to, you know, a future hopefully where we have national health insurance and where everybody can access quality health care, regardless of their income or, or their position in society. Um, we, we need more from government and we need more than just lip service and slogans when it comes to this type of thing. And, and honestly, the kind of the devil's in the detail and that detail is the money and the money kind of speaks for itself. All what you have said for the reasons those who say national health insurance is neither affordable nor practical or does not find an environment that is ready to receive it are emboldened in those remarks and more. Because not only is there less money in the general health care department itself, there's less money to do what it absolutely has to plug as holes in the system. The national health insurance, by most accounts, is to try and do away with these very challenges that are systemic in the system. And most importantly, the final analysis of it is that more people who otherwise are on the margins of receiving quality health care should be able to get that health care through the cross-subsidization that NHI is. But at this stage, all the indicators, 
all of what we are seeing and, in fact, experiencing Chris Gani Baragwanath Hospital being but an example out of a platitude of many, I mean multitude of many, is precisely why the NHI, one would argue, is a non-starter on present facts. Sure. I mean, I, I think that that's, that, that, that's, quite a, that's quite an intense reading of the fact. And I think to say that NHI is a complete non-starter, a complete pipe dream, is perhaps unfair to the amount of work that's gone in you know, from the National Health Department, but also, you know, the inputs of civil society and the inputs of, of healthcare professionals who have really sort of worked at the NHI bill, which is not to say that the, you know, the vision for national health insurance is ready yet or, or that the system is ready for it. And there, there are some promising aspects with this budget there. There has been a large injection of funds for the NHI conditional grants and the indirect grants that are given to, um, given to provincial health departments so that they can start kind of preparing themselves for what NHI might look like. And I, I think more clarity is definitely needed. Um, you know, it's, it's not just about kind of throwing money at, at, at a vision or at a slogan, but actually about capacitating provinces, capacitating the NHI office, which is still kind of taking form. Um, and I think what, what's, what's crucially missing is that there's no sense of a kind of time frame towards this vision or to, to, to towards the vision that NHI kind of gives for universal health coverage. There are no phases or kind of um, no, no real sort of deadlines by which government kind of has to meet certain targets to make this a reality. And I think from, from outside of Section 27, that's a concern because it's a huge project and it will require kind of system-wide strengthening of the healthcare system, which we know is, is going to be a huge challenge. And for that to, to, to make sense and to be practicable, we need to have kind of stronger governance of, of what this project is and kind of a better sense of what we're achieving by when. Because for now, it's kind of, it's, 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 it's quite abstract, in, certainly in, in, in how uh, Treasury is kind of giving money to this, but also in mm-hmm. terms of sort of how certain programs are going to be taken over by provinces in preparation for um, the national health insurance. So more needs to be done for that. And for so long, this remains abstract, to use your words. The output in terms of South Africa's health care remains incredibly divided along the fault lines of privilege mm-hmm. and lack of private sector and public sector. The reason why the private sector in this country thrives the way that it does and becomes therefore inaccessible by virtue of high costs, they can demand that because they know they're in demand, is precisely because of these abstract things that are taking place or have come to characterize the public health care sector. This is just a metaphor of essentially the last couple of years or the last while of the Department of Health in that they are obviously at all times being asked to do more and more, but the resources simply do not corroborate. Added to that by the crumbling infrastructure, which is not something that at all should be dismissed, and the fact that hospitals and healthcare facilities that are of a public character in kind are not filled to the capacity that they ought to be by even practical human beings there to do the work. It's, it's something else as to the experience, the transactional value of being in a public health care hospital. And, of course, it would be south, if not north, in the context of everything that I've said, these abstract things. Infrastructure is poor. Access to these healthcare facilities is still much following the 
fault lines of apartheid and access, mm -hmm. as we know, is always going to be a challenge in that regard. And the fact that the hospitals are simply understaffed. So you find that those who are in the hospitals themselves or other centers of health care are being required to do that much more that they can't do. And as a result, they might even fail on basic metrics, which they wouldn't if there were just more hands on deck. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that that kind of uh, your remarks as well have already kind of pointed to, to to the trouble that we're in. Which is not to say that there isn't kind of potential and that there aren't opportunities for growth and that there isn't fantastic work done by healthcare professionals at kind of every level of, of, of the public healthcare sector in South Africa. But I think in terms of you know in terms of in terms of staffing, this is this is such a crucial point because when hospitals are understaffed. What we see is that the kind of quality of care tends to decline. People aren't getting access to the kind of uh, to the services that they need at the time that they need, and this this kind of creates bigger problems down the line. So what we're seeing is that kind of larger and larger shares of the provincial health department's budgets are going towards kind of paying for medical legal costs. So either for settlements or for court fees in terms of kind of cases where patients have come forward and said that they are suing the provincial health department um, for not giving the quality of care that they have a right to. And while, you know, uh, patients and individuals certainly have the right to kind of come forward when they have been failed by, by a health system, and, and we know that those failures, as you say, are, are widespread and, and are historical and are now based on these fault lines of apartheid, what we're seeing is that more and more money is going towards dealing with kind of the legal costs as opposed to addressing the root problems which create Absolutely. the kind of create the cases in the first place. And, and and staffing is a big part of that. What we're seeing now is that the kind of overall compensation of healthcare employees in the in the public sector is gonna be reduced by three point three percent annually over the medium term, which means that posts or salaries are gonna be frozen. Um, Treasury has kind of admitted that provincial, uh, provincial health departments may have to reduce personnel to sustainable levels. But what does sustainable levels mean when we know that kind of we're, we're in a situation where there are, you know, sort of grave shortages of healthcare staff, particularly also, again, following the deaths of, of thousands of healthcare professionals who died on the front line during COVID or, or the early retirements of, you know, thousands more. Mm. So this is not, you know, this is not... This budget isn't operating in a vacuum, and I think that's what's so frustrating here, is that it's not actually addressing the reality of healthcare on the ground. It's kind of, it's, it's failing to recognize that we had issues with staffing before the pandemic. In 2020, before COVID reached our shores, the uh, human resources for health strategy said that we needed an additional 97,000 healthcare staff to meet the needs of our population, and that's before we've lost thousands of, of, of healthcare workers and, and even more to early retirement. So, you know, these, 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 these problems can become sort of self-perpetuating unless they are actually supported by Treasury and by the National Health Department in terms of actually creating posts for, for specialist staff um, and for more senior staff um, to kind of, as you say, to kind of plug the holes in the system so that more and more money isn't being drained away from medical legal claims too. Yeah seems like it's going to get a lot worse before it gets a lot better if the currency is anything to go by. Julia, thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Miss Julia Chaskalson, a research and advocacy officer at the organization. Section 27, who do incredible work in socioeconomic interventions around health care, food, water, and all things to do with the constitutional promise of Section 27. 2148, everybody, enjoy your evening.